3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It has just clocked over to 7am on the 12th of July. You're joined in the studio here by me, Genevieve, and I've got Fung. Good morning, Fung. <laughs> good morning, Jen. How Hi. are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, yeah, a little bit tired this morning, as mm. I think <laughs> you said you were as well. Um, but I mean, yeah, feeling okay. Yeah. Days are getting longer which is nice we've had some really beautiful days yes recently very clear winter days lots mm-hmm. of fog around i've yeah, been doing a few early mornings and just like waking up and there's fog everywhere you know that's gonna be like a very clear day yeah for sure mm. so eerie though yeah um very eerie I was- <laughs> maybe i've been watching like too much tv um <laughs> namely Stranger Things, but oh, that just makes me feel like <laughs> true. That's yeah, like very, something's gonna happen. Like yeah, the fog. You know, that's very on navigating brand. the roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit late to pa- late to the party with that. I like stopped at season two. I think. Yeah. <laughs> There's so there are so many things to to watch at the I moment. Know, like, I, I know it's actually crazy. Mm. Yeah, I just finished Succession. Oh yeah, I was also I've a bit late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And now I'm watching Alone. <laughs> oh, that's the show where they go out into... Um, yeah, they survive. They try They're to like survive. they yes, yes, It's so yes. ridiculous. I think I've watched one episode and during it I was like, what are you doing? You should be doing this. Yeah. And trying to like tell people what to do, even though if I were put in that situation, I would 100% not know how to do anything. I would last like a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think also... Um, the later the seasons get, the more experienced the people get. And right. so some of these people are making – sorry, this show is not going to be about me talking <laughs> about the <laughs> Some of these people are making, like, literal, literally, like, houses out wow. of nothing mm. and with just, like, a saw and, like, ha- having, like, a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. Does it make you – Want to it makes me brush f- up on your yeah. It makes me feel kind of skills. Yeah, it makes me feel like pathetic. I'm just like in bed <laughs> watching these people <laughs> do like insane things. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, it's just us this morning, but we still have a chockers, um, chocker block. So we haven't used that one before. Chocker block show coming up um we're going to be replaying some of the speeches from the rally for reproductive rights uh specifically esme james who is a phd candidate in english and theater studies school of culture and communication at the university of melbourne and then i'm going to be speaking to chloe de silva about an event that will be running uh later on today in conjunction with so- the socialist alliance and green left 
um, about how to address the refugee crisis in a socialist lens. Mm-hmm. Then coming up at 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea, um, just continuing the conversation about Roe v. Wade and the implications in Australia. You may remember that a year ago, almost a year ago today actually, um, they were on the show speaking to Evie about their book called Empowering Women, um, which takes um, you on a journey uh, from court cases to campaigns to stop the harassment of staff and patients um, outside abortion clinics. So that's coming up at eight o'clock. And then to finish the show today, we'll be speaking with Chris from Victorian Forest Alliance, giving us an update on the great gliders that are currently being threatened by logging and climate change. Awesome. Well, we'll be right back with some news headlines after these announcements. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash PXFANA, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. You're on Tuesday Breakfast on uh, 3CR. Sorry. (laughs) On 3CR Community Radio, we're going to take you through some of the news headlines this morning. Um, Something that I think is being wildly underreported at the moment is the Sri Lanka crisis that's going on and you might have seen in the news um, protesters occupying uh, the president's palace. So following months of economic, political and social turbulence in Sri Lanka, thousands of protesters stormed key government buildings in the capital, Colombo, on Saturday, including the official residence of uh, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Rajapaksa has announced he will resign on July 13th. Sri Lanka Parliament Speaker Mahinda Yapa Abawandina told the media... Protesters later set fire to the personal residence of Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe. Sorry about my pronunciation. Who also offered to resign, and at least fifty people, including journalists and policemen, have been injured in the unrest. Protesters remain at the president's house, uh, the presidential secretariat, and the official residents of the Prime Minister, known as Temple Trees, saying they will continue to occupy the buildings until the President and the Prime Minister officially resign. And this is obviously following um, over the last few months, there's been increasing protests and increasing um, social unrest, uh, mostly due to 
uh, economic crisis um, that's been, been compounded by um, Rajapaksa's presidency, which slashed taxes, which deprived the state of much-needed income, um, and also led to uh, agencies to downgrade Sri Lanka's credit rating, which made it harder for Sri Lanka to borrow from international cabinet market capital markets and also of course due to the pandemic which really um hindered uh the tourism industry um and remittances sorry my <laughs> it's very early this morning economic uh, economists warned that sri lanka might not be able to repay its foreign debt and urged the government to approach the international monetary fund uh so we'll definitely be watching this space it's a growing um uh, issue and I'm sure that people have seen some of the images coming out there's like wards of people just hanging out in this palace um that's just yeah it, it looks so um uh crazy and I mean if it was happening anywhere in like a western state there'd be uproar but um it's re- very disappointing to see that I guess no one's really reporting on it I'm looking at an image right now and there are all these people in the president's pool. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be uh, watching this space uh, and reporting on uh, what happens next. Um, in other news, uh, you probably saw that Shinzo Abe uh, was assassinated um, last week. Uh, Shinzo Abe was uh, renowned for his economic policies. Obviously, he was um, the he used to be the Japanese president. Uh, Present, present, um, and he was assassinated. I think uh, Friday afternoon, um, shot and killed. Uh, and it was his alleged assassin, Tetsuya Yamagami, sought out Mr. Abe. Uh, research campaign events he would be at and made. Um, a shot at him. Uh, Yamagami, which was the assassinator, was 41, told Japanese police his mother was a member of a religious organization and their family had been financially ruined after she made a huge donation. Um, And after the shooting, Japanese police did not release the name of the religious organization, but pressure built as Japanese tabloids and the Washington Post named the group in question. Uh, the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, known colloquially, colloquially as the Unification Church. Um, so that kind of came as a shock to Japan, I think. Um, but they are obviously thinking that it was religiously fueled, um, as, as I do believe that Shinzo Abe was religiously affiliated as well. Um, also, just lastly, before we get into uh, some interviews and some speeches uh victoria has moved to restrict uh, move to restrict silencing sexual harassment victims is has been welcomed by unions and lawyers the use of non-disclosure agreements will be restricted in sexual harassment cases to prevent victim survivors being silenced under reforms proposed by the Victorian government that are backed by employment lawyers and industry groups. The move, which is an Australian first, was announced yesterday by Victoria's Workplace Safety Minister Ingrid Stitt, who said the proposed reforms were a direct response to a ministerial task force investigating workplace sexual harassment which made 26 recommendations, mostly have already been accepted by the government. Um, 
and this is just a report coming out of The Guardian, which understands the Federal Attorney General's Department is also developing guidelines on the use of non-disclosure agreements in a response to a recommendation from uh, that notorious report by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins. Uh, Josh Bornstein, which, who is a high-profile employment lawyer, said the best approach for Victoria's legislative response was to ensure victim survivors had a choice about signing such legal contracts which prevent parties from disclosing sensitive information. Uh, Bornstein told The Guardian uh, that ensure that the victim survivor has the option to make sure that in any legislative change, there's still a trauma-informed approach so the person who is the most impacted by this doesn't lose their choice or agency. Um, So people are kind of looking at this as uh, a step in the right direction but um it would be nice obviously to get an expert to explain this to me because i'm not uh at all educated in the field of law (laughs) um but yeah we'll probably be following that story um in the following week but we'll just go to a quick announcement and we'll be right back with um a speech that was made at the rally for reproductive rights bisexual alliance victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender-attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants, with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back. This is 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am, or maybe you are streaming the show live on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. On the 2nd of July, uh, there was a rally that took place for reproductive rights, and this was in response to Roe v. Wade being overturned in the United States. So this morning, we are going to hear from Esme James, who is a PhD candidate in English and Theatre Studies, the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. When abortion rights are under attack, where do we go? 
when abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Solidarity, comrades! Next speaker today is Esme James. Esme is an academic at uh, the University of Melbourne and a prolific TikToker. <laughs> we'll talk about TikTok going live. She has over 2 million people who follow her Sex Histories TikTok, which is pretty bloody amazing. Um, and she's going to be talking about some of those things of what, what life was like for women uh, and trans people before our right uh, to, to abortion. She also helped to organise the demonstration in 2019 here in Melbourne when Alabama tried to strip totally women's rights to choose, to ban even abortion um, up to six weeks. So total ban on abortion, we, and she helped mobilise then. So welcome, Esme. I would also like to start by acknowledging that we are standing on Solon land today and that our fight for justice here is far from over. In 1973, Roe v. Wade came about, and this was 100 years after the criminalization of abortion in America. Some thought that abortion rates would rise following this legalization, but that isn't what happened. Our estimation is that the rates of illegal abortions that took place prior to Roe v. Wade are identical to the amount of legal abortions that take place today. Banning abortions has never stopped them from happening. History and statistics will continually tell us this story. Banning abortions does not stop abortions from happening, but it sure as hell ensures that more of us will die in the process. The scholar Leslie Reagan recorded the stories of those who suffered in a time where abortions were banned in America. Of the women who paid $1,000 for back alley abortions and were offered a discount if they could be sexually assaulted in the process. Oh of those who couldn't afford this cost and so they drank castor oil and Everclear alcohol. They bathed themselves in boiling water and they threw themselves downstairs. And if these means didn't work out, they hammered their stomachs with meat pulverizers and inserted catheters inside themselves until they bled. We all know the symbol of the coat hanger, but do we know what it actually stands for? The point of the coat hanger was not to perform an abortion yourself. It was to induce enough bleeding, prolific bleeding, that a doctor would be forced to operate and may believe you were naturally miscarrying. They are the means that we have to go to. Sixty-eight thousand women continue to die every year from these methods. Forty percent of those are girls aged between 14 and 25. Do not think for a second that the overturn of Roe versus Wade signals a return back to these dark ages, because it doesn't. It signals a progress to somewhere far worse. If the leaders of the so-called free world can look at these stories of trauma
Obama and Jeff and see nothing but inspiration for their policies, then we are truly living in a world that is governed by monsters. Our current hangers will look different to they did in the past. They will look like doctors refusing chemotherapy because it may harm a fetus. It will look like atopic pregnancies being treated too late. Pregnancies which guarantee both the death of the person and the embryo and a situation we have already seen in Texas this week. It will look like the number of teenagers killing themselves rise because they think they have nowhere else to turn. These are not my predictions. These are observations that have already been made by Michelle Obron working in countries where abortions are currently banned. Let's not forget while we stand here with America that this fight has been ongoing in many places all over the world. 45% of all abortions that take place every year happen in unsafe circumstances. These abortions still account for 10% of maternal deaths every single year. Now is the time to include everyone in our activism. In a time where the scales of injustice are so heavily imbalanced, our strength is in numbers, in bodies. While we stand here today, in our shore and across shores, remember everyone in your activism. Stand with your sisters and your trans brothers and all people with uteruses through this fight. We stand in solidarity and we come up to fight when we are called because they do not win when a piece of paper is passed. They win when we are silent. They win when we stop fighting back and they win when we forget that the power is not ours to take back but was always ours to begin with. We stand and we fight in solidarity and if this fight ever comes to our shores, fucking give them hell. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Stay locked to 3CR. You're listening to 3CR uh, Tuesday Breakfast. Before that, we heard from um, Esme um, Esme James, who was speaking at the 
rally for reproductive rights um, here in Nam on the 2nd of July. Uh, we're now going to go to a track, um, and this is by a song, singer-songwriter from California. I feel like a lot of people know her. Her name is Billie Eilish, and it's her song called My Future, which comes from her 2021 album Happier Than Ever. I can't seem to focus And you don't seem to notice I'm not here I'm just a mirror You check your complexion To find your reflections all alone My Future by Billie Eilish. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. 
Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Have you had your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We are going to play another song for you now before uh, our next interview. Um, This one is called Only One, and it's by Ashley, who is a singer-songwriter from Western Sydney. Her style is pop, soul, and R&B, and this song was released earlier this year in March. My love lies to me and whispers things untrue Tells me my obsession can lead me straight to you But I know that's not true You barely look at me and we hardly even speak Although your favourite pair of jeans But you don't know my name And I don't
That was Ashley with her song Only One. Well, joining us now is Chloe De Silva. Chloe does a lot of work with Green Left, which is a non-for-profit activist media platform, as well as produce and present as part of uh, 3CR Friday Breakfast, which is also uh, commonly known as Green Left Weekly Radio. Uh, Chloe joins us now to discuss an event happening today, organised in collaboration with Green Left and the Socialist Alliance. It's called Asylum, a Socialist View of the Refugee Crisis that will address the growing refugee crisis in a socialist lens. Thank you so much for joining us, Chloe. Thank you so much, Tuesday Breakfast and, and Genevieve. I'm coming to you from stolen lands of the Boomerang people, sovereignty never ceded, and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's so nice to do breakfast crossovers where we get other breakfast guestings. I feel like we don't really get to intermingle that much, so it's such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's, I'm not used to, to being um, the one to be asked questions, but yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about this event that we have today. Yeah, let's get into it. So just to give us some background, um, how did the idea for the event come about? Well, um, as you mentioned, we've written this pamphlet titled Asylum, a Socialist View of the Refugee Crisis, and it's part of the Resistance Books Collection, which is it's an Australian-based non-profit progressive book publisher and distributor for people who don't know about it. Uh, but the pamphlet um, is based on the Socialist Alliance platform, and it's, you know, we really just wanted to have a well-researched, you know, t- technically it's a bunch of essays that gives an overview of the global refugee crisis um, here in Australia, but around the world, um, as we know, you know, we've got very cruel uh, refugee policies of successive governments. Um, but it also gives part of the greater picture as to why, ref- you know, why refugees are treated cruelly around the world. And we decided to hold this public launch of the pamphlet to draw attention to it, but also you know, maybe meet people who might be interested in fighting for refugee justice. Um, yeah, there's just been, I guess, you know, this intense level of manipulation, I guess you can say, by successive governments. And there is a deliberate propaganda line to just try and justify and win support for these harsh, cruel uh, policies. And, you know, we wanted this pamphlet to just give that sort of in-depth analysis and, um, yeah, explanations as to why, you know, why this is happening. Um, it is really just, you know, divide and conquer and, yeah, we just think that it's in the interest of all people to resist these cruel um, policies and, and help build the refugee movement. So I hope people can, can come along to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's so it's so tricky but I think so important to kind of cut through that mainstream media cycle and it does get super uh, confusing if there's such a bombardment of, as you said, propaganda about uh, how we view asylum seekers and refugees Um, without giving too much away, because obviously uh, we want people to attend today. What does, um, obviously the event will address, you know, the refugee crisis in um, a socialist uh, lens. What does approaching the refugee crisis in a socialist viewpoint look like? And I guess, why is it important? Yeah, uh, well, as socialists, we are constantly fighting for equality. And one of the authors of this pamphlet, Sam Wainwright, he argues that the current refugee crisis is it's really a product of capitalism, which is this profoundly unequal 
global economic system that we are all forced to live under and that divides the entire world along lines of poverty and wealth. And, you know, what, which countries are responsible for preventing the social and economic development of these less developed countries so they can maintain their power? And it's, it is both violent and it requires violence to be maintained. And what the government is doing to refugees is violent. Um, you know, and it's important to acknowledge the 1951 United Nations Refugee Convention. It was this huge step forward for the rights of refugees, uh, but it's just been ignored by wealthy nations in favour of criminalising and demonising migrants as part of their mainstream politics um, in countries such as Australia. Um, and this inevitably has resulted in poorer countries really um, harbouring a lot of the responsibility um, of, you know, having to take in more refugees. And that really further entrenches the inequality and divisions of capitalism. And, you know, there is this, this you know, capitalists, they like to try to obscure the link between racial oppression and, and the accumulation of profit. But if, if people do want to look a little deeper, it's really easy to see that there is an economic basis for the government's racist um, offshore, you know, things like offshore detention um, policies. It's because the ruling class has a stake in borders being mm -hmm. militarised. It, it does help to legitimise the control of who is allowed to enter and under what circumstances. Um, and I guess, you know, there's, there's so many contradictions we can see under capitalism. There's absolutely free movement of capital around the world. Um, but, you know, I mean, for instance, a, a company's head office in New York can decide to close down an entire industry and put thousands of people out of work. But, but you know, there's this um, intense restrictions on the movement of people, unless you are mega rich or, or from a wealthy country. So we think it's, you know, as socialists, it's important to highlight the grassroots resistance to this humane, inhumane system um, and that this, you know, there is, socialists do argue for the free movement of people across borders and solidarity in place of, this racism and xenophobia. Definitely. And I think it's such an important point you made about, you know, the government's hard line on refugees and borders is a prof it's profitable for them. Um, and that should like, it's this economic reason backing uh, this pretty blatantly racist and anti refugee line. And as you said, creating the comparison between what corporations get away with versus uh, what people from lower socioeconomic uh, fleeing uh, war-torn countries get away with. You can see a complete um, difference between how governments treat them. Um, obviously, this is we speak a lot about 3CR, about the government's um, approach to the refugee crisis and um, borders in general, but uh, I just wanted to ask before we get into the details on the event, you know, um, what is Australia uh, specifically getting wrong when it comes to the refugee crisis? And I say this in particular to do, in particularly because we have a new government on at the moment and, um, you know, there was a lot of hope for Labor's approach would be better, but there was that turning back of the boat pretty much days after Um Albanese was elected in, I guess, what was your um, take on this? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, one of the first shameful acts 
as sadistic acts of the new Labour government was to turn back those votes on the high seas, which is you know, really an act of piracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, your question, is Australia getting it wrong? I would say, you know, they get, they've been getting it right because the attack on refugees is, is deliberate. Um, so, I mean, what they're doing is wrong, but, you know, we could say they're getting it right because it's no accident that the Australian government is is cruel to refugees. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that hope lies in this government. Um, the, the Albanese government did promise to get rid of the horrible temporary protection visas, which would bring, um, which would, um, you know, does bring a lot of hope for a lot of um, the people stuck on these things who don't have a right to things like family reunion, education, uh, a lot of basic um, rights that, that, um, that we have. But I, I think, yeah, hope doesn't lie in this new government. It lies with, with the people who voted for change. And yeah. you can see this, by the way, the Albanese government tried to claim the Bill Willis family yes. um, going home. Yeah. It's something that they did when really it was the achievement of... Um, or it wasn't their achievement. It was, it was the achievement of the campaign. Um, if it wasn't for those 6,000 people standing up in Bilawila, um they, they would have been sent back to Sri Lanka, back to, dan- back to danger. So, um, you know, it's... And, you know, people want to talk about bad leadership and, you know, mm-hmm. the bad morals of John Howard, but, you know, that government was showing leadership. They were showing leadership to the racist and taking the country in a racist direction. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think people should be hopeful in the fact that the, even the Labor government trying to take credit for the Bill Willer family going back home, um, it does show that, you know, they have recognised that people did vote for them. The people who voted for them want to welcome refugees. Uh, they don't want them locked up. Um, and, yeah, I, I think, yeah, people should sort of, you know, take, take hope from that. But there are still 30,000 asylum seekers that are, not safe until they're granted full rights and, and visas to stay here permanently. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, lots of room for uh, organising. Um, and I think the Billa Wheeler family is a good example of uh, what can happen when people really get around um, refugees. And I'm glad that you mentioned, because it's what I've been thinking about. As soon as the new government stepped in, they kind of swept it all up and claimed it for themselves. All right, let's, before we get too far down that road, take us through the event happening today. What can people expect? Oh, well, they can expect to hear from some really great speakers. Um, also, we do ha- we do serve dinner from, even though it starts at 6.30, we do serve a tasty, cheap vegan meal from 6 o'clock, so you can come and have a chat before it all gets going. But just to give you a rundown on, uh, some of the speakers who will be there, um, Hassan Jabba from the uh, Justice for Refugees and a refugee himself, and, and he's stuck on one of these horrible temporary visas um, and, and can't be reunited, reunited with his family. And then we've got Mari Hupke, who is a longtime refugee advocate and convener of the Refugee Advocacy Network, and she'll be going through some of the you know, twists and turns of government policy and, and, and also... Um, you know, she's a very sort of, um, will remind us of the sort of staunch um, refugee movement. And then we've got Atena Kashani, who's an Iranian asylum seeker and also a high school student who's on a bridging visa. Um, so she's someone who hasn't received any recognition 
of her refugee status, and she's she was also uh, one of the children the Australian government locked up in detention. And then lastly, we've got Andrea Bottoli, who's a refugee activist and social science member, and she'll be giving a wider perspective on why this is happening around the world. And, and um, yeah, it's, I guess there's a wide range of perspectives, and people are, it's not just listening to speakers. Um, there's a, it's interactive as well. You can ask questions, you can make contributions. And yeah, it's, it'll it'll be a, a good a good event to to get to. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a great event with uh, an incredible lineup of people speaking. Just to reiterate before I let you go, Chloe, um, I know you just mentioned it, but just so our uh, listeners are sure, when is this event happening? Uh, where is it happening? And can people join online? Yes, they can join online. There's a Zoom link, and you yep. can find that on Facebook event. Um, and you don't have to register for it. Um, it's going to be at the Resistance Centre at 407 Swanson Street, which is on Level 5 and is opposite RMIT. And I just need to tell listeners with a disability who they're in a wheelchair or they have a mobility issue, the entry to the Druid's house is by a short staircase before the elevator. So regrettably... It doesn't really allow access to people in wheelchairs. I'm terribly sorry about that. But please do join us over Zoom. Um, you can participate um, and be um, an equal um, participant in, in the forum. Um, and, and, it, and it is sort of like a, you know, it, it's really insightful coming together of collective discussion. Um, it's really important that we can enrich our understanding of the refugee crisis, especially from a class perspective, from a, a socialist perspective. And, um, yeah, I think the pamphlet really is a great contribution to what is going on with refugees today. So, yeah, of course, we'd love people to, to buy it, um, but also yeah, come along tonight. Um, you can also purchase the book at um, www.resistancebooks.com. It's $10, and I think it's a very important pamphlet to have. Yeah, definitely. And we can provide all of those links up on our website so people know exactly where to go to find the details. Well, thank you so much, Chloe, for coming on Tuesday Breakfast. It's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Genevieve, and Tuesday Breakfast for the opportunity and uh, good luck with the rest of the show. No, thank you. Good luck with the event. Thank you. That was uh, 3CR's very own Chloe De Silva discussing an event addressing the refugee crisis in a socialist approach happening tonight uh, at 6.30pm and there will be a dinner half an hour before from 6pm. As Chloe was saying, it will be at the Resistance Centre and Bookshop Melbourne where you can meet on Level 5, 407 Swanston Street. Uh, but you can also join via Zoom and uh, as Chloe said, there no registration is required so you can just click on the link which is up on the Facebook event page which you can find um, shared by the Socialist Alliance Facebook page or the Green Left Weekly Facebook page all right we'll be right back after this 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. 
Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are going to play a song for you now. This is by Palestinian singer-songwriter based in Melbourne. Her name is Yara, and this is her song called Manhater. Just risking it. Don't wage war at the glass boys on your roof. When they fall and shatter, the one to catch them is you. Sharpen your weapons of wit, fill the cracks in the fault line. Tell them you don't get to decide whether my body is mine. Uh, sister, I said we're singing the blues. Don't you know my heart beats the same rhythm as you? When you complicit, then the misters make you dance with that tune. And even the odds make you accept us if they win, then we lose. Sister, I said the song is for we. Let me vibe with your divine feminine energy. Give me your hand. Send the hurt, lend me your voice, revolutionize this women's work.
That was Yara's single, uh, sorry, Man Hater featuring Manali. So earlier in the show, we replayed a speech um, by Esme James uh, from the Rally for Reproductive Rights, which took place in Melbourne on the 2nd of July. We are now going to play another speech from that rally, and this one's from Dorinda Cox, who is a politician and Yamachi Nunga woman and was the first Indigenous woman to represent Western Australia in the Senate. Turning out today. You guys have the most amazing energy, and this is the epicenter of activism right here in Melbourne. And you guys have turned out to exactly what Liz said stand in solidarity. I first want to start by acknowledging that we are on stolen land. This is the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. It always was and always will be. I want to acknowledge their elders, past, present and their emerging leaders and I'm so glad that this state is moving towards treaty and this is what our party stands for and this is what we took to the election. But we are here today to talk about abortion rights and in my state, I am the Green Senator for Western Australia, we still haven't decriminalised abortion laws in our state. Shame! In my state, I've worked as a domestic violence advocate and I know how important that is. And the front line of sexual assaults, the rapists and globally are celebrating the precedents that the US have actually set for the world. And it takes one politician, one politician like Matt Canavan to come out on Twitter and talk about and celebrate Roe versus Wade. So shame. And where I sit in the federal Senate, and with the balance of power with 12 senators now from the Greens, I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'll tell you to keep on raising your voices. Keep on organising. Keep on educating. Because that's what people need. And as Liz said, this is about the future generations of human rights law. In this country, women's rights. But you know what? It's not a women's issue. It's an everybody issue. So I want to celebrate... And I want to acknowledge all the men standing in solidarity, our trans people, our non-binary people, our people with disabilities, our women with disabilities, our women that, as Leslie said, this is not a lottery postcode. This is not about status. We have to bring the energy. We have to hold the line about this issue because this is a clear message to our federal government. We need more funding for health care and we need to make sure abortions are free, legal, and safe for women in this country. Because, God damn it, as a mother of two daughters, I want to make sure that my kids have access to this in their future. This is our bodies and our goddamn choice. Let's go! That was an incredibly powerful speech from Dorinda Cox at the uh, the Rally for Reproductive Rights on the 2nd of July. Dorinda, in her speech, was uh, urging people to organise themselves and and start educating themselves on this issue. We're now going to hear from one more uh, person from that rally. This is Annika Demanuel. Annika Demanuel. Anna Kay is a leading student activist and socialist. I think that it's worth reflecting on the fact that this decision that is overturning the rights of millions of women and pregnant people across America 
decision was decided by an unelected, unaccountable mass of lawyers. Why do these unelected, unaccountable individuals get to make a decision which means that millions of people will no longer have the right to make a decision about their own body? Annika Demanuel speaking at the Rally for Reproductive Rights, which happened on the 2nd of July. 
We are now joined by Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea. Dr. Susie Allenson was a clinical psychologist for more than 35 years. 26 of those years were spent at the Fertility Control Clinic in Melbourne. Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer and writer, um, and Lizzie represented the Fertility Control Clinic in the Supreme Court case to stop the harassment of staff and patients um, there. And together they have written a book called Empowering Women, from murder and misogyny to high court victory. And they were actually on the show uh, a year ago speaking to Evie about their book. And they're here again uh, joining us to speak about the implications of Roe v. Wade here in Australia. Thank you for joining us, Susie and Lizzie. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Um, Dr. Susie Allenson, I might just begin with you. Um, regular listeners may recall... Uh, our interview with you from last year, but just to rejog their memory, could you please give us um, a summary of your book called Empowering Women? Yes. Look, it was released to mark the 20th anniversary of the murder of Fertility Control Clinic security guard, Steve Rogers. Um, and that murder of a man by an anti-abortion religious fanatic triggered a fight for women's rights that ended up becoming a landmark High Court case for women, um, in contrast to what's going on in the States. The court unambiguously decided in women's favour, recognising that a woman's decision about a pregnancy is essential to who she is and how she lives her life, and that religious extremists must not block, shame or harangue her. And uh, healthcare staff are not to be abused either. So from our case, uh, that was uh, fought by an army of women um, and, uh, you know, the, safe, uh, the, the uh, Supreme Court case was pivotal in us winning in the Court of Public Opinion and getting legislation uh, that now sees abortion-safe access zones of 150 metres now in place around Australia uh, and also every state now has decriminalised abortion, except I think uh, WA is still working on it. Yeah, um, that's an incredible uh, victory that you've just uh, told us about, Susie. And, and we will get to um, each state's rules and regulations on abortion in just a moment. Um, Lizzie, I just wanted to ask you, what are the 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 big differences between um, uh, laws on abortions in the US and in Australia. I feel like there has been a lot of discussion on, on Roe v. Wade uh, recently, of course, since it was overturned in the US. And I think it's helpful just to remind listeners on what that looks like um, in an Australian context. So Roe v. Wade uh, was really a dialogue about the rights of states to impose um, conditions or impositions on women seeking abortions and whether that was legitimate constitutionally. Uh, and obviously the Supreme Court in the US is a federal body and, and states make laws themselves about certain matters. And essentially what Roe v. Wade did was uh, endorse the right to an abortion on the grounds of privacy, saying that states couldn't impose certain kinds of obligations or impositions on women in order to access abortion care. Um, but, of course, since that time, we've seen states um, in the United States, including most notoriously perhaps Texas, but lots of different states across the entirety of, of, of the United States of America, 
introducing impositions and testing them um, constitutionally through the Supreme Court. And ultimately, um, this particular case that overturned Road um, did succeed in doing so, essentially reversing the um, Supreme Court's uh, ruling that states couldn't prohibit abortions in certain circumstances and couldn't prohibit, couldn't impose certain kinds of obligations, which made it very difficult to access abortion. The reason I'm giving that kind of semi-technical background is I think it's fair to say that for a long time access to abortion in the United States has been very difficult for many women across the entirety of the country and particularly in states obviously where there's anti-choice legislators and um, and senators and, um, and governors who do not support women's right to choose. But that has been a looming kind of reality for many millions of women in the United States and that this recent overturning of Roe is probably the end point of that process that began decades previously. Um, the difference is, of course, in Australia that we have states that did legislate for these kinds of things. Um, you know, abortion was in the criminal code in places like Victoria, but largely across the country. But in the last 20 years, we've seen that being dismantled. So uh, decriminalisation of abortion, um, you know, Western Australia is outstanding, but there's still a significant um, number or, you know, abortion has largely been decriminalised in Western Australia. In each of the other states across the country, we've seen decriminalisation and then endorsement at the high court level of the capacity to bring um, laws that prohibit harassment of women around abortion clinics. So it's a bottom-up approach to the reform of the law that's sort of in reverse or the, uh, or the reverse of what's occurred in, in Roe v Wade, which I think is an interesting kind of um, example to look at. I mean, there's lots you could talk about in this respect, but one of the things I would say in summary is that in Australia we've seen a movement of women, of advocates, people like Susie, um, lawyers like me, but many, many others who have been agitating for reform at a state-based level and then proactive reform that's been endorsed um, as compatible with our constitution. And that has meant that the right to access abortion in legal terms is better protected than it is in the States. There are still access problems, no doubt, in Australia, but from a legal standpoint, we're in a much better position than our sisters in the US. Yeah, and I and I do want to touch on those non-legal access issues in just a moment, but just to... Um, bring back what you were saying, Lizzie, about the work of these incredible women who really fought um, for for safe access to abortions um, here in this country. Um, something that struck me listening back to your interview with Evie um, was, Susie, you talking about you know, coming together as this group of women who were so passionate about this issue and finding like-minded people who were really prepared to um, work hard and, and fight um, fight for this issue. Um, now in light of Roe v. Wade and and looking back at that campaign and that struggle um, with this sort of as a lens over it, um, is there anything that you are currently reflecting on in terms of uh, your uh, that 20-year um, struggle? Look, I think one of the things that made a huge difference for us was the timing, the fact that there were women like Lizzie O'Shea in a very important position at Morris Blackburn who could um, push forward an important case in the Supreme Court. Uh, in, and, um, and women uh, like Chris Walker, QC, um, who uh, represented us in the Supreme Court and then went on to become the state solicitor uh, 
uh, General and prosecuted the case at the High Court so that she was all over this and um, it was really wonderful to hear her words in the High Court. Um, and in the media, you know, we have more women in positions of power in the media and journalists who are prepared to um, speak up for women and can uh, call out the uh, completely offensive and dangerous uh, rhetoric of um, religious extremists on the right. And uh, so I think women being involved, yes, we had men who championed us as well, and they were crucial from from the from Premier Dan Andrews um, to men on the High Court to men as lawyers um, in the media. But I think this uh, the fact that women are finding themselves in, in more positions of power and actually being uh, in the room where decisions are being made has made a huge difference here. Look, I do want to say that I understand the United States political and legal um, climate, if you like, is quite different from ours. I mean, we, we do not have people usually walking around with guns. Um, I mean, unfortunately, that, that's what triggered all this, that we had a murder of a man that, that, that triggered women rising up for women. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, th- and I think also we... That, that gives you um, perhaps uh, don't require quite as much courage or it's not as fearful uh, to speak your mind. Um, and we did not tiptoe around the religious extremists here. Uh, and in the book Empowering Women, I've included the voices of so many women, including politicians, uh, via um, Hansard, and also uh, the High Court justices and the transcripts, because their their words were so inspiring in standing up for women's rights. So I think our, we we called out uh, the nonsense of the religious right and the harm of the religious right, which I feel like in America everyone's had to tiptoe around that more and somehow be. Um, I'm not saying we weren't respectful, but but somehow have to bow down to mm. that whole notion that a, a woman's life is worth less than a, a fetus or an embryo or a sperm or an egg or whatever, um, and that women are only, you know, they're, they're just completely objectified over there. Yeah, it's really interesting that you you say that, Susie, because uh, we did have Tanya Penevik on the show uh, a few weeks ago, who gave us yeah. some really good background information on the um, the rise of the evangelicals and 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 um, and right wing politics in the U.S. and how that they've really um, influenced discussions and policies on abortions over there and have also had some influence here in Australia as well, being invited to um, to, to speak with certain MPs on on abortion laws. So so you're right, it is quite different, but um, but yeah, it doesn't mean that they should be dismissed or ignored. Um, and yeah, it is incredibly important that we continue to, to fight, even though, um, like both of you have said, Abortions are largely decriminalised here in Australia. 
Um, Lizzie, I did want to touch back on what you were saying about the fact that, like we just said, uh, abortion has been decriminalised in almost every state except um, it's still part of the criminal uh, comes under the criminal code in WA. What are some of the non-legal access issues or obstacles that um, women and pregnant people face uh, here in Australia? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have a crack at answering that. Although Susie probably knows firsthand as someone who's worked in um, a provider uh, for a long time, um, I'm, I'm just a lawyer. But uh, what I would say is that there are certainly parts of Australia, particularly if you're not in a city where it can be difficult to access abortions. Um, you know, there was a period in Tasmania, for example, where there was no one providing abortions um, in a, a specific clinic. But there are still methods of accessing abortion. Of course, you know, not all abortions occur in abortion clinics. So, you know, if you do have a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy where you know, you, you still need may need surgical intervention. Obviously, that can be available at hospitals and the like. So it's not um, that, but that's not the only kind of abortion that, that women seek either, of course. So, you know, a big part of abortion is being able to access it on demand and have the care available um, if you've got a, a problem pregnancy or a pregnancy that you want, you need counselling for, that you're able to access those kinds of services for really easily. And that is much more difficult if you're not in a city particularly um, maybe also if you're from a specific cultural background and there may not be people who can assist you um, that can bridge that cultural divide and help you work through those issues. Those kinds of things are really important. I mean, in some ways, abortions are more accessible than ever. You know, we've got developments now with the availability of abortion drugs, so you don't need to have a surgical abortion. In, in many instances, you can have an abortion um, taking uh, pills. However, it is really important that those things that that process is under the supervision of a medical practitioner, and so I do think it is really important that you've got access to people who can help you through that process and explain it really clearly what's involved. Um, and so I, I wouldn't want people to assume that that um, the availability of those drugs has just solved all our access problems. I still think there's a real importance in developing practitioners and encouraging um, people within the medical profession to assist with these field and to uh, help with and make these decisions, but also then ensure that the care that they receive, um, if they are proceeding with determination, is, is really of a high standard. Um, and then, of course, if anything goes wrong with any of these procedures, that there's accessible treatment um, that's not, not far from people's homes, but doesn't require that, you know, you travel extensive distances and take time off work and, you know, find people to care for your children in order to be able to access a term, uh, an abortion. So, there's also different components of that kind of care. It's not even just the immediate front-facing care, but also some of the cultural and, um, you know, psychological components of seeking this treatment that that um, are required to, you know, to fully understand access, I suppose, is what I would say. Uh, and it can be a slightly more complex issue than people think. But it is astonishing how few people are dedicated providers of abortion services across the country, and I think people would be surprised but it can be more difficult than it ought to be in a country where it's decriminalised and largely, largely enshrined in law everywhere that, that that access ought to exist legally. Um, it is quite a different question in practical terms what that looks like. Yeah, and um, just before we, we finish today, uh, Susie, just touching on what Lizzie just said, um, in the book, you know, you were talking about your time at the Fertility Control Centre and talking about the fact that it was women-centred and so every aspect of, of women's health was being looked after and cared for. Can you just tell us, um, just to, 
to close our interview for today. Tell us a bit about that and why we should have more of these um, centres that that uh, really prioritise every aspect of women's health. Um, well, we had everything under one roof. So we had pathology and theatre and consulting rooms and we had uh, every health professional you could imagine, including pregnancy counsellors. So we were able to really provide a, a woman-centred approach and our language and our, our whole approach was very woman-centred. But if I can just follow up on, on some of what Lizzie said, um, you know, there's no real medical pathway for, tra- for training uh, doctors in abortion. Um, so that so that more GPs might take it on, or as, as Lizzie's pointed out, there just aren't enough services. Plus, our public hospitals really aren't. I, I don't think they're not really shouldering um, their responsibilities. And certainly, the uh, government-funded um, Catholic uh, pu- public hospitals, if you like, um, are not providing abortion services and various contraception services uh, at all which if they're receiving um, public funds, I just think that's pretty outrageous. Um, so so they're, they're major issues. Uh, for those coming to a private hospital, as, as the fertility control clinic is, um, the Medicare rebate has not gone up for decades, I think, um, so that women are stuck with uh, more out-of-pocket expenses there. Mm. Uh, so you know, there's there's quite a bit there in terms of uh, where we can definitely improve availability, accessibility, um, and affordability for women. Yeah, um, on that note, we're going to have to, unfortunately, um, uh, end our interview there. But um, it it sounds like, well, we have achieved a lot and, and your book, Empowering Women, celebrates, um, you know, that in, in many ways, there's still a, a, lo- a long way to go for a, for a lot of people and a lot of women here in Australia. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea for joining us on the show today. It's been another very um, uh, important discussion that we're having on reproductive rights here. So I'd like to thank you both for for coming on the show to talk to us. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Uh, that was um, Dr. Susie Allenson and uh, Lizzie O'Shea, co-authors of the book Empowering Women from Murder and Misogyny to High Court Victory, um, speaking to us just now. Um, we're now going to jump straight into our next interview. Um, I'm joined now by Chris um, Schuringer, the campaign coordinator uh, for Victorian Forest Alliance, who joins us on the show today to give us an update on the Greater Glide that are currently being threatened by logging and the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of news on uh, the Great Gliders um, recently. They've just been officially listed as endangered. Um, What does that actually mean in terms of um, protections for these creatures? Yeah, so just after um, being listed Six years ago, first listed as vulnerable, the greater gliders now been listed as endangered. Sadly, uh, it doesn't mean much in terms of new protections or uh, a decrease in the threats that there is facing threats like uh, uh, native forest logging, climate change, devastating bushfires like what we saw over 2019, 2020. 
So, um, sadly, on the ground and in Victoria, it doesn't change a lot of the threats um, that the greater gliders face, particularly logging in Victoria. Yeah, um, and you just listed, you know, the the current threats to to the greater gliders, including, um, yeah, bushfires, logging, climate change, which are all interconnected. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that um, and the devastation, um, you know, that is caused by um, native forest logging? Yeah, absolutely. And as you as you say, um, they they are all linked together. Uh, Scientists have long known and researched the the impacts that um, that logging has on the flammability of forests. So when you log an area, it's the young regrowth that, that comes back, which is highly flammable, and it also dries out the soil, so it makes areas much more prone to more frequent and high-severity fires. And there was research that showed that um, the 2019-2020 bushfires, while lack weather, played a really important role that logging... Uh, did uh, increase the severity in, in, in areas. Uh, and then also with climate change, our native forests are some of our best carbon stores. And so logging not only is a big emitter itself in, in, in the process, um, but also it's logging at carbon, which has been stored and is, has been safe for thousands of years. So, yeah, mm. it's... Um, it's it's a really really destructive kind of process, and then all of those things uh, coming together and sort of um, in these feedback really awful feedback loops. It's devastating for the greater glider, which is so sensitive to all of those um, all of those three threats. Uh, and given the the future risk of of more bushfires and and climate change getting worse and and um, lots and lots of logging planned in, in greater glider habitat, uh, it faces a pretty precarious future, especially given that, you know, it's gone from vulnerable to endangered in just six years. I think that says a lot. Um, and the failure to act, really, to protect the species. Yeah, and I can't help but think that every time, you know, there is a devastating bushfire, a lot of the time we see... Um, the media cover the bushfires and, and um, show us footage of... Um, creatures like koalas and and other wildlife that have been harmed and put into danger and and that that they almost become, you know, a symbol for the devastating effects of bushfires and yet yet the the solution is right there in front of us that's to stop destroying their habitats. Um, And so it, it just feels a bit sort of like there's a cruel irony behind, you know, them being used as the face of, of um, you know, the devastating effects of bushfires when, you know, uh, as humans we are actively contributing to their their loss of habitat. Absolutely. And and when, when the Greater Glider uh, was was listed by the federal government, uh, the, the new environment, the federal environment minister, Tanya Pudasek, was talking about... Um, nest box programs and revegetation programs and it's like that's all well and good to say those things but we can't be putting in nest boxes which aren't even proven to work for greater gliders while logging still goes ahead and the federal government kind of tries to sort of um, shift shift the responsibility onto the states and while it is like a state issue it's a Victorian government agency that's doing this logging uh, the state and federal governments have these really awful agreements which means that logging is exempt from um, from federal environment laws, 
under these regional forest agreements. So the the federal government certainly can take action now to rethink these these devastating agreements, which means that the logging doesn't have to um, go through an environmental assessment program like other devastating, like mining and um, you know uh, development. It's the only destructive industry that gets that special uh, special treatment, that special mm. exemption. And so the federal government could act now to change that, um, as well as you know state state based action to protect to protect the greater glider. Yeah, um, and. Just one last question, Chris, that I had for you. Um, it, it, we've seen recently with the anti-protest laws that have been um, uh, sort of implemented here in Victoria, it just makes, um, you know, it makes it so much harder for, for, for civilians and, and grassroots campaigns to actually um, be in the forest to protect these creatures. Um, yeah, have you been you know, part of discussions in terms of how these anti-protest laws are going to affect, um, you know, groups like the Victorian Forest Alliance and and, and the work that they do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It has the potential to impact uh, not only um, people that are doing direct action, it also will impact groups that are conducting citizen science because people are going out into these areas and, and, and looking for animals like the greater glider uh, and a lot of that data that's collected by citizen science, it ends up on the Victorian Biodiversity Atlas. It actually is really, really critical to understanding where these animals are and also so that they can actually be protected. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> to have the potential that citizen scientists are going to be fined, <laughs> you know, potentially thousands of dollars uh, for, for surveying for threatened wildlife, it's just absolute insanity and... Also, it, it is, um, uh, yeah, an infringement on, on people's rights to protest as well. And what we know is, is that these kind of draconian laws, they don't work. People, um, people who are passionate and people who care about this issue will continue to take action. And so uh, it's a really crude attempt to, 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 stop this, to stop peaceful protest when the government should really be focusing efforts on bringing forward the transition out of native forest logging in line with like what people expect, people mm. support an end to end to logging, and so we should just focus on on doing that instead of um, throwing the book at peaceful protesters and citizen scientists. For sure, um, we're coming to the end of the show now, uh, Chris. So uh, unfortunately, we'll have to end it there. But I just wanted to say a huge thank you for coming on the show and just explaining to us more um, the situation involving greater guiders here in Victoria. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. That was Chris Schuringer, campaign coordinator for Victorian Forest Alliance, um, speaking to us about the Greater Gliders. To stay up to date with campaigns, you can visit www.victorianforestalliance.org.au. Cool. As you said, we're uh, at the end of our show now. Just to reiterate what we had on, we replayed three speeches from the Rally for Reproductive Rights, um, three incredibly powerful speeches um, that were also played on Diaspora Blues uh, yesterday. And then I had the pleasure of chatting to Chloe De Silva about an event coming up tonight about uh, approaching the refugee crisis in a socialist lens. Uh, We spoke with Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea for their take on Roe v. Wade and uh, access to safe abortions here in Australia. And just now we heard from Chris from Victorian Forest Alliance speaking to us about uh, the greater gliders. 
Uh, as always, we have Accent of Women coming up next with Giselle Hanna. And keep it locked to 3CR and enjoy your Tuesday.